It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm India. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the politics of COP. COP27 begins today in Egypt, where global leaders are meeting to work on the world's fight against climate change. And the UN has said progress on cutting emissions has been woefully inadequate since COP26. If countries follow their current policies, it's been found by experts, then the planet's temperature is expected to rise by as much as 2.8 degrees this century, when the agreed limit is that rise should be no higher than 1.5 degrees. And listeners can actually track each different country's carbon emissions and to what extent they're meeting their pledges on our excellent data journalist, Nick Ferris's emissions tracker on the New Statesman website. So do go and have a look at that. But today I'm delighted to be joined by our environment correspondent, India Bork, to talk about the Climate Summit and Britain's place. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, India. Thanks for having me, Anish. And there's a lot of politics to get our teeth into regarding this year's COP, but we'll come on to that further on in our conversation. Let's talk about the substance of it first. How different is this year's COP to the one that was in Glasgow last year, which I feel was really in the sort of media spotlight because it was obviously held in the UK? It was held in the UK that it felt like it was so great to have kind of the world media attention on climate for once. This year does feel the mood board is totally different. and. Part of that is due to the fact that this is probably, it was being talked as one of, one of the most challenging contexts in the 27 years that the COPs have been held. And a large part of that is obviously due to the war in Ukraine, which has begun since last November's COP. And it's put such huge, combined with the after effects of the pandemic, such huge effect on so many economies around the world as well as geopolitical tensions between Russia, obviously China and the West, that this is it's hugely challenging to be talking about the even much greater challenge of climate change, but which in some ways doesn't feel as pressing to some politicians as the state of their economies. So that's part of the different mood shift. And then the other part is slightly more technical, which is that until... Glasgow last year, all the nations were working on finalising the rules by which the Paris Agreement 
would be kind of adhered to. And those rules were pretty much finalised last year in Glasgow. So in a way, the, the agenda for what's going to be discussed at this year's COP is much more open. And then thirdly, something that some politicians have been slightly, maybe disingenuously, putting emphasis upon, including some in the UK, is until, again, until last year, COPs that every five years, there would be a really big meeting where all the big political leaders would come together. And that happened last year in Glasgow. But so some are saying, oh, this year isn't as important, except that last year in the Glasgow Pact, it was agreed that in order to help ramp up ambition and keep pushing, because we're on such a tight deadline to get these global emissions down, that every year, every COP would be a really important meeting. So some people seem to have forgotten that all too quickly. Yes, because I think it always used to be like some COPs were more important than others, but I think it was supposed to be the end of that ebb and flow, wasn't it, this time around? Yeah, exactly. And the need to have to keep that level of urgency up is obviously greater than ever. And we've all been feeling it, I think, wherever you live in the world, that we've seen, especially in Pakistan, with the ghastly floods, even in the UK hitting 40 degrees this year. So the UN is sent out, each warning feels like it's bleakest, and this mm. is particularly so. It says that the gap between all the pledges that countries have made to bring their emissions down and what's actually needed in terms of pledges to bring emissions down to meet the Paris Agreement target of keeping warming ideally to 1.5 degrees, then the policies in place today, they put us on course for 2.6 degrees of warming. If countries meet their current pledges for 2030, we'd end up at 2.2 or 2.4. And if all the like most ambitious level net zero pledges that are currently on the table were implemented, then I think that limits it to 1.7. But that's still obviously over the 1.5 that, that we really need to keep off the worst. Right. Okay. And what are the main talking points at this year's COP? I was following some of the coverage over the weekend ahead of the talks and looking at the front pages this morning, the obsession of the <laughs> British media seems to be on this idea of climate reparations. And Ed Miliband, who <laughs> is the shadow net zero minister, appeared to suggest over the weekend that Labour backs calls for the UK to pay out to poorer countries who are affected by the climate change caused by the richer countries like the UK. Is that really top of the agenda or is that something that's caught the eye of the British media in particular? It is fundamental. So finance, so there's two almost fundamental parts <laughs> to how you can think about the negotiations on climate. And one is obviously getting all the countries to agree to reduce their emissions in line with that all important 1.5 slash 2 degrees warming target. And we're still off that. We're still not meeting that. So that the ambition has to be upped on that. But then part of that conversation for developing nations, they a lot of them say, look, you can't expect us to make this gigantic effort to reduce our emissions um, when we are not historically, A, we're not historically responsible for a lot of the emissions that already exist, and B, we're experiencing the worst effect of those historic emissions already. Developing nations are most severely impacted by climate changes, floods and fires and heatwaves, and, and we're certainly already seeing that and it's only going to get worse. So they've been pushing from the start, from the very start of these talks and negotiations along the, over the years for climate finance. And there's right. certain mechanisms and existing pledges and kind of institutions to, to help deliver that. So one pledge was to deliver 
$100 billion of climate finance by 2020, and that got missed. So now there's a new deadline on that, but it's pretty, pretty poor effort that especially countries like the US and UK still failing to give their fair share. And some very interesting assess analysis by Carbon Brief recently has shown that in terms of their historic emissions, the US should pay a certain proportion of that $100 billion and it's falling far short of paying that. So that's already a problem on the table. How do you make climate finance work? But additionally to that, that, that existing climate finance it's been hooked to something, things called mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation means mitigating climate change. So taking steps to re- reduce emissions and try and prevent more, more warming occurring. So obviously investing in renewable energy is the obvious one. Mm. And then adaptation is money that can help countries act to the effects of warming. So building a seawall, for instance, if you're, if you're at risk from rising sea levels. But some, the real climate reparations issue is something called loss and damage, which developing nations have been saying for a long time, look, it's, we need money for more than that. And we need more than humanitarian aid in the immediate aftermath of a disaster. We need money to like, help us rebuild after we get destroyed by floods, etc. And that finally, in quite a breakthrough in the early hours of, I think, Sunday on the first day of COP, countries agreed that it would, for the first time, be on the official agenda. So loss and damage has made it onto the official agenda of what is going to get talked about for the next two weeks. That doesn't mean it's going to get solved. <laughs> it's, they've, got, they've given themselves till 2024 to come up with a kind of a mechanism or a vehicle to make it work. And to be honest, they still have to work out the mechanisms and vehicles to make the rest of climate finance work as well. A very long-winded answer. <laughs> no, no, it is really helpful. Yeah. And is that what you'll be most looking out for? And what's what are you what's going to catch your eye as you cover the talks? So there's a lot, there's so much. The climate finance is really core to building the consensus and, and the momentum behind the emissions reductions overall, which is the absolute headline goal that must be reached. Then there's so many parts, moving parts within it. One is that I find particularly fascinating is forests and this notion of, it's a terrible phrase, called nature-based solutions, which is essentially how you can use land, like growing trees or protecting peat bogs or things to essentially suck carbon out of the atmosphere and store it and thereby help bring down kind of overall emissions and offset some of the emissions that can't be turned into it swapped for renewable energy. However, a lot, there's so many problems with all of this. One is that the amount of land currently needed um, for if we were going to meet all the kind of offsetting promises that countries, et cetera, have made. It's some vast, I think it's equivalent to the size of the US, which is obviously just unfeasible and that's even that's a problem even before you get into these schemes that have been set up such as preventing deforestation or afforesting new areas they're beset by all kinds of problems such as double counting their emissions and not necessarily not doing what they're saying they're doing these problems these projects and then also the really worrying issue of land grabs wealthy nations or companies think that they can make some money or offset some of their emissions by planting a whole load of trees or protecting some trees, then 
there's a huge potential for overriding the rights of local people and in indigenous communities, especially in quite vulnerable areas. And often they're the people who have been shown to actually protect these natural resources. So overriding their rights is a real downhill, downhill trend. Yeah. Okay. And I remember, and I'm sure our listeners will remember last year, COP26, a big topic of the conversation ahead of the talks was that Russia and China wouldn't be, or at least the Russia and Chinese leaders wouldn't be attending. And I just wondered who is and isn't turning up this time and how much does it actually matter before we get onto the domestic politics of it all? It is a really interesting one at this COP. So in terms of who is turning up, so Biden, obviously a huge player, he is going to turn up, but he's turning up a bit late because obviously it's the midterm elections this week, which mm. is quite an understandable distraction for him. And so he's probably turning up on Friday. It's great he's attending. Emmanuel Macron is a really strong international leader on this. He's attending. And Lula, who's just been appointed to Brazil, he's going to attend, which is Honestly, just like a wave of relief really, for anyone who works in this area to have Bolsonaro out and someone who actually wants to engage positively with climate is such a relief in terms mm. of Brazil. That on the kind of bad scorecard side, <laughs> no China, no Russia, no India. Obviously, China and India, two of the biggest emitters. Australia, mm. who's been a kind of terrible climate laggard in terms of its contributions is not bothering to attend. Canada also not attending. And the reasons they've all given is it's very depressing. They're saying, oh, it's, there won't be any breakthroughs. And it does feel quite self-defeating if you say there's not going to be a breakthrough and you don't turn up to make one, then obviously there won't. But it's very interesting how all this is being talked about in the media in terms of who and who isn't attending. Obviously, Greta Thunberg said she wasn't attending. Actually, at an event, at the global launch of her new book, The Climate Book, which took place in London on Sunday. It was interesting to see the way that was covered. It was a wide-ranging conversation and she did mention within it that she wouldn't be going herself to COP27. Mm. It was picked up in the media. People rightly zoned in on her saying that COP27 was a bit of a scam. The COPs in general were a scam. They don't achieve, they haven't achieved enough over the years. There's been 27 of them <laughs> and they haven't got that and we still don't have the solutions we need. Um, but I almost feel that it can be taken too far when she quite rightly says it, they're not doing enough. I'm not sure she's in... I think people can perhaps overinterpret what she's saying. She, in her guest-edited issue of The New Statesman recently, an interview with a singer Bjork and our lovely Kate Mossman, she did qualify us a bit, saying, actually, cops are useless, but if they change, then they can be useful. Mm -hmm. She's not saying that they can't ever work, it's just that they're not working. <laughs> but <laughs> if people show up and if the people who show up actually get the plans and policies in place to make the change, then obviously that's what we need to happen. So we'll see, even if, it, I think there's going to be an interesting interplay between what's happening in Egypt at COP27 over the next two weeks and what happens in Bali next mm. week at the 20 meeting. I think over the next seven days in Egypt, you're going to see a lot of developing nations, especially, especially saying that we really need more effort. We really need more ambition. And then that's, going to fall to a lot of the G20 leaders who are all attending in Bali next week. They're going to have to answer th those demands. And of course, there was one other world leader who tried to get away with not coming. So we'll talk a little bit about that and the UK politics side of COP on the second half of the podcast. So do stick around for that. 
Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Edward Docks on the death of Boris the Clown. When did the booing start? He was never exactly sure. A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. One presenter told me that producers had taken to booking their own parents. May Robson on why women's football is the more beautiful game. Like most of the England squad, the Euro 2022 captain Leah Williamson can't afford not to have a plan B. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So Rishi Sunak originally signaled that he wasn't going to attend COP, citing more pressing domestic issues at home, particularly the autumn statement that is coming up later this month. But this was seen as a big mistake and a bit of a snub because the UK still held the COP chair before passing it on to Egypt now. And it had talked big on climate change under Boris Johnson's premiership for all of his faults as a leader. This was a priority of his and he is actually attending COP, I think, as we record. He is calling on leaders not to water down their net zero emissions commitments. And obviously, then there is a bit of mischief going on there as well because of he, he and Rishi Sunak's political relationship having fallen apart. And so that was part of the pressure that was piled onto Sunak to attend. And then, of course, you had Alok Sharma, the COP26 president, who was downgraded from a cabinet position by Sunak. He, on the record, criticised the decision of the prime minister not to attend. So this was his first major U-turn in office. He is actually attending. We don't know a huge amount, actually, about Sunak's stance on climate change. Over the summer, he pledged to block all new onshore wind schemes and he reversed Liz Truss's decision to restart fracking. So, you know, you get the idea that it's very shaped by the politics of the Conservative Party, really, so far. He seems to still be committed to new North Sea exploration. We haven't heard a huge amount of progress on home insulation. And actually, when he was chancellor, the Treasury did seem to be the sort of trying to rein back on the net zero agenda, although you would expect that from the Treasury. But I think there was a bit of scepticism on Sunak's part as chancellor about the sort of speed and cost with which we would be trying to reach net zero. So we might find out more. I don't know. What do we know so far about what he's going to 
tell world leaders later on, India. So it's great that he immediately came to power and said, look, we're not going to do fracking as we originally (laughs) said in our 2019 manifesto. Sorry about that blip, everyone. But apart from that, I don't, I wouldn't say the signs have been particularly encouraging as they weren't when he was chancellor. It's quite lackluster. As you say, he's U-turned on going to COP only after a considerable amount of national and international pressure on him. And it really was the easiest win just to say he was going. Similarly with offshore wind, like it's an easy win and it's a very bizarre decision not to back it, which as you also mentioned, can only seems to be justifiable in terms of pandering to the the right wing side of the Tory party. So in terms of what he's actually going to say today, yeah, I think he's going to say as the Glasgow Pact pushed for, that 1.5 degrees warming, the idea of it is still alive, even though it's definitely on life support, even more so than it was last year. But he's right, it's, it isn't out of reach and it is important to, to remind people of that. There is still time. Not much, but there is some. He's also going to unveil some more funding, apparently. I think 200 million of funding to protect forests around the world and green technologies in developing nations to help them support that transition. On the forest issue, it's quite interesting. I actually, of course, we need to give money to other countries which have those all important tropical rainforests and other stretches of forested land that can really suck up emissions. What doesn't get talked so much about is actually the UK's own forests, which are in a pretty dire state. I interviewed Guy Shrubshaw recently. She has a new book called The Lost Rainforests of Britain. And what many people don't actually know is that Britain also has rainforests because of our warm, wet climate. We have temperate rainforests. Again, we have a terrifyingly small number of them left. So many people will never have visited one, but they are there and there are these amazing places dripping with ferns and mosses. And you walk into them and it does feel like walking into kind of Jurassic parks. They're amazing. They're not just good for climate change. They're good for biodiversity, huge amounts of biodiversity they support, which again, it is all part of making the planet resilient enough to deal with the amount of warming that we've already built into the system. So the stronger our natural systems are, the better we'll hopefully be able to cope with what's already ahead. So that's a little side note on on funding for forests. We certainly need to support our own forests as well. Um, And then I think probably he, Sunak, will stress the importance of the link really between tackling climate change and making the world more secure in terms of geopolitics as well. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine reinforced the kind of need to move away from fossil fuels and by ideally investing in green and renewable energy. So that will probably be a large part of what Sunak says. He tweeted just the other day when he said he was going to go to COP, he, he put a big emphasis on how prosperity and growth can't be achieved without tackling climate change. That was a massively welcome thing to hear, a huge relief after a lot of the rhetoric we've heard during the Tory leadership race and under Liz Truss. It was all about how security, national security must come first, and that's being used to justify the expansion of oil and gas exploitation licenses and under trust fracking as well. Start to see that rhetoric shift to where it should be in the actual, the much more legitimate place for it, which is actually the cleaner, greener world we create will be a more secure one. So that's a 
really reassuring to at least hear him get it right on the rhetoric. It's not the action yet. Yes. Yeah. And actually, I did say that he pledged to block all new onshore wind schemes in his leadership pledges over the summer. But actually, what we have heard since is that all of those promises that he made in that campaign are now up for review. We could see a U-turn on that as well. So even if that decision to not to restart fracking and to undo what Liz Truss tried to do, even if that was out of political expediency because of the way that Tory MPs reacted, it was ultimately the thing that brought down her government in the end, the kind of straw that broke the camel's back. Even if, you know, that's the case, it could be that onshore wind pledge is reversed, actually. So we'll keep an eye on that. But actually, what I think is quite interesting is that decision, the initial decision not to attend, I think, exposes a bit of Sunak's political naivety. I was actually at a focus group, and I spoke about this on the last episode with Andrew Marr and Rachel Wearmouth. I was at a focus group in Isha, which is in commuter belt, Surrey, quite affluent, um, with a sort of bunch of swing voters. And that was on the evening of the fracking vote debacle. And so the main topic of conversation was cost of living and housing costs and being worried that their children would never be able to own homes. But something that had stuck out to them was the king, King Charles, not being allowed to attend COP. And they reacted negatively to that decision. And even the kind of more conservative Brexit voting among the group really wanted to see us not go back in time to oil and gas exploration and to move forward. I think someone put it in quite patriotic terms that we should be a world leader on this. We want to move forward, not backwards. And I do think there is a little bit of a detachment of Rishi Sunak from that kind of blue wall fairly affluent, green-minded, erstwhile Tory-leaning voter. And he will lose those, I think, if he makes decisions that make it look like climate change is not one of his priorities. Because to this group, and this runs counter to a lot of the assumptions, I think, in media, particularly political media, reporting about this subject, they felt that it wasn't mutually exclusive to bring down the cost of living and to prioritise climate policies, which is often the kind of contrast drawn by the kind of net zero sceptics in the Conservative Mm. Party. So I thought that was interesting as well. And really that blue wall contingent is very important to how Rishi Sunak rehabilitates the Conservatives' reputation in the build-up to the next election. Equally, I think there has been a bit of naivety about how important the sewage crisis is to people around the UK. People who live in coastal constituencies or constituencies that are on a riverside, for example, and they can see the way that their waterways are being polluted. I think that really caught Westminster by surprise. And they obviously haven't gripped the issue yet because we've seen, we've had a lot of rain recently and we've seen a a lot of clips that look quite disturbing. And we spoke about this last time, actually, when you were last on. We did. The sewage one is a really good example of how Westminster doesn't get, it's not on the same page as actually A lot of the British population is not just on sewage, but is most people are anti-fracking and are Mm. pro-climate action. And it really is this small but highly influential group within the Tory party, within the Westminster Tory party, often represented by the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, led by, founded by Steve Baker. And they're just, they push this narratives that action on climate change and green energy is bad for cost of living and therefore we should move slower in terms of climate action in order to protect the economy. And it's reverse thinking. It's the reverse of what needs to happen and what would actually help. If the Tories hadn't scrapped 
support for insulation and the Green Home Homes Grant and all kinds of renewable energy during their time in power, then energy bills today would be an awful lot lower because mm. people would have insulated homes and we would have less reliance on fossil fuels. Hopefully people are finally understanding just how self-serving and disingenuous it is. <laughs> oh, well, I think that's a really good note to end on. Thanks so much for taking the time, India. I know it's a big environment week, so I'll leave you to your coverage. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleague, India Bork. We're producing... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe. And if you want to ask a question for You Ask Us, you can go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us and submit one.